0: Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel. I have a returning guest. His name is Michael Sayan. He's been on my show now three times and he has a lot to say tonight. Uh, He has been in court and he won through part of the case. Uh, The final order is not back yet, but I'm going to let Michael explain what went on in the federal constitution that says the parent knows what's in the best interest of the child. So, Michael, tell us more.
1: All right. And you're absolutely right. Um, There's an argument um, right now as far as who knows what's best for your child. Um, According to Parents' Partray Doctrine, design in 1608 in England, um, the king of England, um, or England itself said, we know what's best for your child. And we are the true parent of your child. And everyone's heard of making children wards of the state. Well, as soon as a case is filed, a filing case or case is filed uh, regarding a family law matter, those children immediately become wards of the state, or that's at least how the state looks at it. Um, And then the state is able to, um, by taking authority over your family, the state is able to actually make decisions as far as what is in the best interest of not your child, but what is in the best interest of the state. And that's really where the best interest of the child standards derive from. Marianne, do you have anything to say about that?
0: I think it's, um, they're overstepping their bounds telling you what to do with your kids. (laughs) And I That's think, right. So it's a. Go ahead.
1: That's right. I was saying it's, it's absolutely right. So it's called government um, uh, intervention or government mm-hmm. authority or government intrusion. Uh, you've heard probably a lot of these terms. Uh, basically, it's the government overstepping their authority. They are stepping out of jurisdiction. Uh, jurisdiction. You don't have jurisdiction unless you have authority, um, and everyone has a limited jurisdiction, such as. Um, The uh, uh, husband and wife have jurisdiction over their children um, and or the governor has jurisdiction over his territory. Um, The executive branch has limited jurisdiction. So everyone has limited jurisdictions. Um, And God alone is supreme. supreme, So he has unlimited jurisdiction. But besides that, um, when you hear jurisdictional um, questions come up, they're really asking, does this person... Or does their position have the authority to make these types of decisions? And many times you can make arguments on jurisdictional authority and actually win uh, by saying that the uh, this actually supersedes um, their position or the authority that was granted to them uh, by the Constitution or by the laws of the land. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a little bit. Uh, now, sure. Marianne, you've been uh, uh, you have been doing this program for Slam the Gravel for a while, and I mm-hmm. actually called up Marianne to let her know about a little situation that kind of happened. Um, and uh, so, Marianne, you've probably have been learning a lot yourself uh, with all the people that you've been uh, interviewing. And I was wondering, what has been your biggest? Um, what has been your biggest, I guess, uh, takeaway so far from all since, since the beginning of your program till now?
0: I've talked to well now um 21 interviews and um learning about narcissism and what happens when the kids are taken away and of course your first interview which was a very valuable learning tool that was very good And so many people learned from it. There were so many downloads from it. And uh, I just keep learning with each interview. There's always something new to be learned.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's pretty awesome. They say the best way to learn something is to try to teach it. Um, So, yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about my case. So uh, first of all, I called Marianne because I, Um, After three and a half years, they still have me in supervised visitation. Um, And for no endangerment of the child whatsoever, I'll go a little bit into my case. Um, But uh, as I was looking for supervisors for Christmas, uh, yesterday I sent a mass email out to supervisor networks and one supervisor wrote me back and I said, hi, this is Mike Sand. I'm looking for some supervised supervision for Christmas because my normal supervisor is not available. And she writes me back, is this Michael Sands from Slam the Gravel, Michael Sand, or Slam the Gavel, Michael Sands? So I was like, I was like, how in the world did you hear me? Then I thought, well, maybe she just looked me up. Maybe she saw my email, she looked me up, and she said, no, she said she's actually listened to the program before she heard of me, um, and um, that somehow... Uh, we uh, slammed the gravel, um, put, uh, or slammed the gavel, put a, strike the the fear in the hearts of, of many of the child protection services and human services and supervisors um, all throughout this nation. And I'm in Minnesota, um, of all <laughs> places. And Marianne, where are you at?
0: I'm in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah. And they heard about her all the way up here. So anyways, uh, so hats off, uh, to slam the gra- uh, slam, slam the gavel. I'm always mixing up, but, uh, because, uh, people are listening. And remember it's, it's the courts are listening. Your, um, your ex spouse is listening. The parent of your child is listening. The, um, CPS human services, everyone is listening and looking at your Facebook. Don't think they're not. Uh, Marianne will probably tell you there is tons of people doing fake accounts, Mm -hmm. Um, and watching Facebook on a regular basis, all social networking. Is that correct?
0: That's correct. And you would think they'd have something better to do with their time (laughs) instead of watch people or watch me, but I'm going to keep going with this show. And if it upsets them, that's just too bad.
1: Yes. And it's and it's actually and it's actually good. So and I wanna say it's actually surprising. You will find this out that the majority of people in governmental positions, even the judge himself, they do not know or understand the constitution, some of the basic tenets of the constitution. They don't understand this stuff because they're only they're given a book that's basically a rule book for family court. And on this rule book it really tells them this is how you respond to this question, this question, this question, and that's all they study. And you better believe when they go to law school which is actually directed by the American Bar Association American Bar Association uh, has a direct effect as far as what is being taught in the law schools um, and many of the uh, the books that are actually um, uh, put in the law schools as well Um, and so they are indoctrinating these lawyers and they're not teaching them about your rights they're teaching them about their rights and really that's really all it is this has always been a check Uh, uh, with uh, check and balances. Uh, That's how the United States was always designed. But the bad thing is the people who are making your decision for your family and your child don't know your rights. They actually are taught a false doctrine on how to supersede your rights um, with trickery, uh, with um, tomfoolery, uh, with, uh, with basic narcissism, Uh, Supervised visitation, which is completely unconstitutional because it's taking away your your, uh, unalienable child um, and putting the government having authority over it and actually invading into your privacy. Um, so mm-hmm. it is against the law for the government to tap your phones and it's against the law for the government to supervise your child under the same thing. It's protected under the Privacy Acts of the Constitution. You have a, a, a constitutional right for privacy of your family and supervised visitation actually violates the privacy. A matter of fact, uh, and an interesting story, Marianne, is that uh, Justice Scalia was being interviewed and he actually uh, said in one of his dissents, um, that he would like somebody to challenge uh, supervised visitation because he believes it's an unconstitutional um, uh, uh, outright uh, thing as far as the government intrusion. Um, but he actually said because he had, he couldn't quite say that because he cannot uh, predetermine a case. But he did say uh, on a dissent on one of his cases that he would like somebody to challenge the constitutionality of supervised visitation. So if there's anybody out there who's thinking about doing that Supreme Court for a case, um, it is possible that they will hear your case if you actually bring up supervised visitation. Uh, You probably could also talk about uh, terminating parental rights as well. Um, And, uh, and I could, let me, I probably need to go into a little bit of history why the federal, go- uh, federal courts will not handle these issues. You actually have to go straight from the state courts, the state Supreme Courts, right into the United States Supreme Court. You have to supersede all federal district courts and circuit courts on your family matters because of a few doctrines out there. One's called the uh, Rooker-Fieldman Doctrine, um, which says that states are supreme, which they base that decision off a Supreme Court decision based upon the understanding of the 11th Amendment, that they actually say the 11th Amendment clearly says that um, one person cannot sue a different state that he's not a part of, but how the Supreme Court actually interpreted that is saying that a person cannot sue a state at all, uh, his state or another state. And so what they did is they actually consider that to be a s- supremacy um, amendment, giving states complete supremacy um, uh, over, um, over issues of, of the people inside their state. Um, so it's, it's a perversion of, of the actual 11th amendment, but the rooker Fieldman doctrine actually exploits that and says that, Hey, uh, federal courts will not supersede state court's decisions if under five, it has lists five different reasons. But one of the reasons says, if you're a state court loser, That's right. If you're a loser, you cannot bring up a case in the federal cases um, with the Rooker-Fieldman Doctrine. Uh, And uh, there's uh, about 500 cases a year, if not more, overturned on the Rooker-Fieldman Doctrine alone. So, um, And uh, what will happen is actually if you bring your case to the federal district court, anything to do with um, uh, family matters, domestic relation matters, child custody, alimony, um, they will usually immediately be dismissed um, by the Rooker-Fieldman doctrine. Uh, that case is now being challenged. Uh, the United States Supreme Court and other supreme courts have actually made a decision uh, earlier this year, 2020, saying that you know what the uh, Rooker-Fieldman doctrine um, has been used too liberally. Um, and it needs to be narrowly tailored to the actual uh, to limit to what the actual uh, rooker and the actual uh, fieldman what those particular cases decided. It needs to be focused on those. However, um, what they said was we're not the federal court said we're not worried about it anyways because there's enough uh, doctrines out there right now that will supersede state court cases anyways, such as uh, younger extension uh, extensions, uh, or absentations ex parte younger um, domestic relations exemptions uh there's a lot of things out there there's other doctrines out there that try to stop your case because of a domestic here's now here's a little bit of history in 1858 the supreme court actually made something called the domestic relations relations exemption and what they said was the federal government said well since marriage uh, divorce and everything, custody and everything to do with the family. Uh, since it's not legislated by federal uh, federal um, uh, federal law, they said, "Well, then state law is supreme, basically in all family matters." So, in 1858, the federal courts made a decision that they will stay out of all um, uh, all questions or even constitutional questions regarding the family, and they give the states complete supremacy. Because of the Tenth Amendment, which the Tenth Amendment said um, the enumerated uh, the enumer- the enumerated powers of the federal government, if it's not enumerated, if it's not mentioned in the Constitution, um, the uh, the powers belong to the states and to the people thereof. So it's uh, they and then they use the Eleventh Amendment to actually supersede um, any federal court case that comes in there to do with your family, even if it's a violation of a clear constitutional right. Do you have anything to say on that, Marianne?
0: Well, you know, they make up the rules as they go along.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And what it is is that if, they, if one person starts to kind of break down uh, a, a rule, then they'll actually make a different rule. And <laughs> the same thing in family court. And they'll have you, if, they, if you can jump through one hoop, they'll give you 10 more hoops to jump through. And they'll keep on adding hoops because there's really no way to stop um, somebody who doesn't have any um, oversight. Um, from creating new hoops, new arguments, new law, new legislation, new bills, um, and and new arguments that are completely bogus and they go and they actually violate your constitutional rights because nobody is holding the courts, um, the police or anyone else actually accountable for their actions and their decisions. So
0: yeah, I'm waiting for the day that they hold these judges accountable. You know, they just uh, sit back and, let cps or the opposing side run the rule the roost and you know they just don't i don't know if they just don't care
1: it is what it is is it's a it's almost like an elephant in the room right they're like well you know what if the problem becomes too big it's easier just to pretend that it's not there Right, mm-hmm. just like they said, if if uh, if a dog takes a poop in your living room and you leave it there long enough, it becomes part of the furniture. Right, you start mm-hmm. putting your coffee on it. Right, so they're just and uh, and that's really how the federal courts and the court system doesn't. They remember the especially the especially the ju- judicial court system. Uh, as far as with the courts, they don't want to handle matters that have to do with they believe that legislation should handle. Uh, and the truth be told is that legislation should be handling a lot of these family matters. They should be coming out with legislation like 50-50 uh, shared custody bills. Um, mm-hmm. Legislation needs to really come in and come in and defend the people. They haven't been making those rules. They have not been protecting the people. Therefore, all these problems get put on the courts. The courts don't want to deal with it because it's a legislative problem. Um, and because legislators want to be voted back in the office, they're going to do just what the people are pleasing the people. And right now, the number one uh, proponents against in in legislation um, is the American Bar Association, which is extremely liberal. And they came out and admitted they're liberal. And they they actually, with the funds that they, the the dues that they collect from uh, the other bar members, uh, they actually uh, uh, fight, purposely fight against any family court change. Um, And the National Organization of Women and other feminist groups, they actually join in the fight uh, with the Bar Association, and they actually put a lot of pressure on the legislators not to actually change bills, even if it would be clearly would be in the best interest of the entire family.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess a lot of people don't have a lot of respect for the Bar Association, people that I've talked to they really have no respect for the Bar Association, saying they really don't do anything. You know, they've complained about an attorney and they just don't do anything.
1: All right, the, the American Bar Association, um, just to give you a little bit of history, which is really super important. Now, what happens was, uh, we have the Articles of the Confederation. The Articles of the Confederation was before the Constitution of the United States. The Articles of the Confederation is what connected all the states together. Now, what the states are—a state was an independent government. It had its own legislative branch, executive branch, judicial branch. Matter of fact, they even had their own constitutions um, before the the before we actually the the federal constitution was designed. So they were their own individual um, uh, independent governments um, with open borders, if you will. And then what happened was the Articles of the Confederation really tied them together. However, um, it was a very weak federal government um it basically said that hey you know if you if you uh they they didn't require taxing um they're like hey if you want to if we need to collect money for war it needs to be voluntarily from the states or if we're going to go to war um you know uh, it needs to be uh, the soldiers need to be volunteered from the state so it was a very very weak way to to connect all the states together and actually in the articles of confederation it said two interesting interesting things it actually said the states were supreme uh, or under supremacy. So this is the first time we actually see the word supremacy used. It states were under supremacy or had the supremacy. Uh, mm-hmm. And then number two, um, it said something that we actually find out later that the Thirteenth um, Amendment actually said. Now the Thirteenth Amendment that we have now is not the original Thirteenth Amendment. Um, you probably did not know that, Marianne. No, um The no. the so the original Thirteenth Amendment um, it actually said that um, uh, that. You could not hold a position in government if you had a title of nobility. This is also in the Articles of Confederation, it said that as well. Uh, Titles of nobility. What that basically means that if you uh, had a title, a noble title, a king, um, some kind of power position in a different nation, you couldn't, le- you couldn't hold a governmental position in the United States because there would be a conflict of interest. Um, so um, if that makes sense, because mm-hmm. if you hold titles in, of power in, in two different nations, they, they would question who would you be loyal to. Well, this actually was in the Articles of Confederation. Well, it actually made it to the, uh, to the actual original um, 13th Amendment. The original 13th Amendment was, oh, around 18, I'm just guessing around 1809 or so, 1808. Um, and what it said was that um, people with titles of nobility could not hold office. Now, the, the problem with that is that what we learned later, eventually the 13th um, Amendment, um, even though they say that it was ratified, uh, we had the War of 1812. Um, the, and during the War of 1812, uh, the uh, the White House and, many, and the Capitol, and many other other buildings were burned down. And 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 supposedly, with the records of the ratification of the 13th Amendment uh, was lost. Um, it was brought back into existence in 1850, and then in 1875. Um, what they did was they actually decided that, hey, they said that, you know, we, all, we didn't believe it was ratified. Now, the, the reason why, Marianne, this is so important on the ratification of the 13th Amendment and the titles of nobility, because when you understand the Bar Association, the Bar Association, which um, as far as it's very interesting, Bar Association is an acronym. And if you ask uh, the, Bar, the American Bar Association what the acronym stands for, they would. They don't know themselves. So say, well, it's a bar that separated um, the, the the people from the you know, um, from the, the the judges or the officers of the court, and or you know, like, but they don't really have a solid answer or even what the acronym means. And everyone pretty much knows around the uh, the borders that the, the acronym um, bar means a British Accreditation Registry. Hmm. now when you look at an attorney um what they're going to have at their end of their uh end of their names they'll have the word esquire Esquire, yes so esquire is actually a title of nobility now Mm -hmm. the question is is um if the american bar association which the bar stands for uh, british accreditation registry and i'll explain why that makes a little bit of sense but if that actually is from a registry of the uh from from england then what you're doing is you're holding, by having the word esquire, you're actually, you're considered a lord or you're holding a position um, of, of power in the British, um, in the British registry. And therefore, um, the question is, is that are they going to be loyal to the British crown or to, um, uh, or to the, uh, or into the United States? Now, 60% of Congress right now, that's the House and the Senate, are Bar Association members. Uh, the number of of people that actually are bar members in the United States, or who are lawyers, I think it's uh, 0.006% of the American population is lawyers or have a bar association card. Um, but the you have 60% of them who are who are. Uh, who are actually in charge of Congress. Now, before it was 75%, and it's gone down a little bit, and they're trying to bring those numbers back up. So the Bar Association is not a licensing. Uh, not a licensing. You are not licensed as an attorney through the bar. You're licensed through your state as an attorney, right, or a lawyer. Um, the Bar Association is a club. It was designed in 1875 around uh, in New York when several lawyers in New York and in other states decided to kind of do a little small monopoly of, of hey, let's put ourselves together and call ourselves, you know, the bar. And eventually in around 1903, um, it started to explode in the United States and it became a monopoly. So remember, they're, the lawyers, um, they are actually licensed through the state to practice law. Right, but the bar association or the bar card—that's a club card. They play. They play. They pay dues, club dues. Like when you have a license, you don't. You don't pay dues. Uh, you don't pay dues for your driver's license. So um, the, it's actually it's a club, and what you do is you're paying into that club, and then with those dues, that they go ahead and make decisions on legal matters and, and so forth and so forth. And it's a monopoly. It's a monopoly that has not been challenged here in the United States. Now it's going international. 90% of the uh, uh, of America pays for, uh, or excuse me, 90% of all the dues from America pay for the International uh, Bar Association now to be put in other nations throughout the world um, because they realize that it, it's such a powerful. And now this, they didn't, the American Bar Association, they didn't design all this by themselves. It was originally created by England. Mm-hmm. Um, Marianne, is it okay if I tell a little bit of history? Because a lot of people are confused on common law Uh, and what is common law and courts of equity and what's legal and what's lawful. Is it okay if I kind of explain that a little bit?
0: Sure, uh, because the more we can learn, the better. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, so, okay, so when people understand, like, well, what's common law? Well, this is what happened. So around in, in England, oh, in the early 1100s, there was something called the traveling courts. Now, the traveling courts would be a judge, and, you know, the judge and, and all the people of the court would get in basically a caravan, and they would travel from town to town, and they would make a decision. Now, that decision became law, right? That case became law. So they would legislate from the bench. They would make a law. Now, what happened when they would, because it was a law, common law, they didn't use equity at this time. So what happened was um, if they said, hey, if you steal somebody's horse, you have to pay a certain amount of money. When they went to the next town, as that became law, if somebody's house, a horse got stolen, they said, well, according to the case we just did in the town next over, they had to pay a certain amount. You have to pay the same amount. And then what happens was all these individual cases started to come together and it started to create a system of laws that would be so common law basically means a law that is common to all. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And now these common laws didn't have didn't have almost any equity, meaning they didn't have any um, the, the judges were not able to bend from the law that much. Um, therefore, uh, they were very limited, the, the judges were very limited on what they could do in particular cases. We'll use that if you guys ever uh, do a pro se um, appeal, uh, the same thing, you'll use cases to actually make a decision and the courts of appeals or the appellate courts of the federal courts, they'll be uh, subject to, even if, even if they know the law, they'll be subject to the case law that you state. So the case law that you state gives them the authority to be able to make a decision going in the, uh, to going and decision your way. So the, So you use a whole bunch of cases to to, as we still use today, use a whole bunch of cases to prove your position. Um, and you're using basically a whole bunch of cases to say, hey, this is common law, and this is, this is why you should judge my case because my case is similar right? Mm-hmm. Not the same, but it's similar. Therefore, as you've decided these cases, you need to decide my case in a similar fashion. Therefore, that's common law. Now, common law is actually mentioned in the Constitution. That is that is the law of the land. Common law is the law of the land. Um, it is a little bit of a flexible law, but that law is flexible um, based only upon how other decisions have been made. So the judges are um, are uh, have a very strict code um, that you know, we can only make decisions based upon prior court cases, or what we call precedents. Um, precedents. Um, so now, something. Uh, so that basically came in England. Now, what happened was the king realized that if he controlled the judges on these traveling courts, and he told them how to judge or make decisions, that he could control the laws of the land, and he could control the people through the courts. Okay, Now, this is very important because when, you, when, when the king realized, hey, if I control the courts, I can control the people, but he also realized that he can control the taxes and the taxation through the courts. So, these traveling courts would actually require a certain amount of sums of taxation. So, eventually, the king became extremely rich, um, hmm. and he was able to control all the people because he was able to call the shots because he owned the judges, Right. The lords of the land. Uh, basically, anyone was almost considered a lord if you own land. The majority of people were slaves during this time. But mm-hmm. um, uh, but uh, if you were a lord of the land, basically what happened with all the lords of land says, wait a minute, the king has become rich off of um, uh, off of basically um, uh, making laws from the bench. Right. Legislating for the bench. And they're taking all, he's taking all of our money, he's taking our control, and he's telling us what to do through the court system. And so they actually, um, with, uh, with actually, you know, swords and guns or whatever they had at the time, um, they actually came up with the, they came to the king of England. They says, you need to go ahead and, and this is not right. And by force, they created the Magna Carta. Right. The Mm. great charter and the Magna Carta was actually um, where the Constitution of the United States actually derived from. Gandhi spoke about the Magna Carta. So the Magna Carta is basically a human rights, uh, uh, the right to the people that there's a there's a human right. Right. There's a right for the, the humans that they have and the king um, has, to, has to respect some of these basic human rights, uh, mm-hmm. such as being judged by your, by your peers. The reason why the Magna Carta said being judged by, um, judged by your peers is because they realized that the judicial system was so corruptible that they wanted to be judged by their peers because their peers were less likely to be corrupted. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, the reason why that's important, because um, then basically what happens later on um, common law courts were very, very strict. You did, didn't have that much play in them. And so a lot of cases didn't feel like there was a, they had a good uh, outcome um, because they were only able, the courts were only able really to charge money uh, or, you know, like, uh, or torts, kind of their, for, uh, charge people money for individual violations where there was no, there was no equitable, there was no flexibility in it. So basically what happened was the courts of equity was designed this way, and it's important for everyone to know, is that the people who felt that they got a bad decision in the common law courts or that they, uh, they thought that their case was not, uh, couldn't be presented in the common law courts um, properly um, is they went to the king of England. And they went to the king and they, they threw themselves at the, king, the mercy of the king. And they basically said, mercy upon me, O king and this is my case I have it with my neighbor or this is a, a decision that the common law courts made and I think it's a bad decision and it needs to be reversed. Well, the king had supremacy. It was called the Leviathan uh, uh, doctrine, or Leviathan, um, um, I guess you could say doctrine, but it's a Leviathan um, uh, view of, of things. And that was from the Bible, the, the great Leviathan. But the Leviathan, uh, what it did is it said that, hey, the king is supreme, and nobody can challenge his position, and his, chal- mm-hmm. and his decisions are unchallengeable. So what happens was the king would use a scepter and, and actually make decisions for the people. So eventually, mm-hmm. more people and more people started to go to the king because they felt felt that this common law courts was just not adequate or they had a problem with the decision they made so the king eventually became so numerous that he went to um he went to the 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 chancery of the court was actually the courts the courts, of, the courts of, sorry he went to the chancellor uh and he said um Uh, which was actually at the time with the archdiocese, I believe, or the uh, archbishop um, of the church. And he actually hold a position both in government and in the Catholic church. And uh, this is where we have the courts of chancery. So he asked the the chancery to go ahead and he says, hey, I give you my authority. Um, And these are called the the king's court, uh, uh, the courts, of chancery were called uh, courts. um, Let me see. They're called keeper of the king's conscience Mm -hmm. and so what they would do is they would make equitable decisions and but people don't realize those equitable equitable decisions were not just based on a whim those equitable decisions were based on canon law they were based on uh case law because they were very familiar with cases as well as they were very familiar with and they they came from the catholic church so they actually used the canon law of scripture. So that's where courts of equity came from. Courts of equity came from the basic humanity or the human rights um, that you would see in the scripture, canon law. Um, and that's where courts of uh, canon law or courts of equity came from. Eventually later on, uh, these uh, courts of equity uh, used something called a maximum of law. And they would use um, like to, to, come to, the, you know, to come to the courts, you had to have clean hands right? Or to, to receive equity, you must be equitable. And basically saying that you cannot be a guilty person seeking equity and equity really meant mercy. That really what the original word came from is to, to seek a merciful humanitarian decision. Um, it was not really based upon the rule of law. It was based upon, um, uh, it was based upon God and man and life and love. Um, and it was based on the, the principles that you'd see in scripture, um, of, of, um, of, uh, equality and, um, also, um, uh, you'd see so other things that you'd see in scripture. So what happened was, is that the courts of equity was really basically a human rights court uh, to be able to to, to make sure that um, decisions were made that that were in the best interest of the people. now, what happened was eventually these courts were dismantled and incorporated with the common law courts in eighteen seventy five in eighteen seventy five they realized the courts of equity did not work they were too expensive they were litigating way too long um, and uh, only really the really rich lords were really able to even afford um, to go into these uh, uh, courts of equity. And so basically there was an old cartoon that said the equitable decisions by the king were as different as the uh, size of his shoes on his feet. And then on the cartoon, it had a picture of a, of a judge uh, or the king having a small shoe on one foot and then a huge shoe on the other, basically meaning there was no consistency in mm-hmm. an equitable courtroom. And so they dismantled it, and they actually, through, through their legislative acts of parliament, 1875, um, they actually combined uh, common law and uh, courts of equity. And now what's the problem thing, was in, in America, through, through twisting of law, is mm-hmm. in, uh, in uh, divorce and and domestic relations they were handled through the civil courts, um, all the way up till 1910 with most states 1900 to the 1910s, um, and the individual states they started to use this um, courts of equity principles. But remember, courts of equity was based upon the supremacy of the king. It was based on. This person makes a supreme decision, and it was really unchallengeable. You cannot, and you were not designed to to appeal um, an equitable decision. Like once that decision was made, they had supremacy. It couldn't be challenged, and it couldn't be appealed in England. That was the original design. So that's how come even today when the, uh, the family court, um, they make equitable decisions. Um, you're not going to have a court of appeals or even federal courts wanting to overturn these um, these discretionary decisions or uh, equity decisions because the original design from England was from the, um, was from the king himself and that says when the king makes a su- uh, supreme decision, no one is to challenge that. Does that make sense?
0: Oh yes. Someone was just talking about this on Facebook that all our laws have come from England.
1: That's anyway. correct. That's, that's right. And, and what happens is we have, we have some major problems because we have supremacy lies with the king and to the people last. And the United States was built on a principle of the people, we the people, uh, really have supremacy on the top, or the states have supremacy. Uh, states and the people have supremacy, and the federal government is, is last. So we have an upside down um, uh, supremacy uh, understanding of, um, of government. Um, so when we bring over the law, we cannot bring over the natural law from England into our courts because the natural part of law, or the doctrines or the cases from courts of England, was based on the the supremacy of of, of the king or what we would say is the federal government um, and so, or Parliament. Um, so when you look at uh, now, there's constitutions in England right now, but those constitutions basically Parliament is the constitution. Whatever Parliament says um, is what. The Constitution means, and uh, that's unchallengeable. So um, we still have a little bit more of a flexible government, but it's very, very dangerous to actually take um, uh, the laws of England directly. Um, uh, You can take some basic principles of of England's law and, and, and put it into ours, but you can't bring it all because you're dealing with a supremacy doctrine um, that's reversed as how as America was, because America didn't wanted to protect itself from being corruptible from within. They wanted to protect ourselves from people in power to gain more power, and so they always wanted to have checks and balances to make sure we, the people and the voters, um, actually were able to um, choose the legislations to be re- able to represent us.
0: Mm-hmm. Well wow. <laughs> that's a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, so a lot of people like common that's the difference between common law and courts of equity, and that's why courts of equity didn't work in England and why it won't work in the United States. Um it's it's based on the supremacy model of the king. Um mm-hmm. it's based upon not being uh the decisions not being challengeable um and or to be able to overturn. That means abuse of discretion really you really cannot by definition um, tell a lower court judge who has, um, who has discretion that he abused his discretion because discretion basically just says, you know, it's an equitable decision. It's not based upon the rule of law. There's only two types of courts. Either you have a court that's based on a rule of law, or you have a court that's based upon opinion of the judge. Um, and the courts of equity are, uh, are cases or courts, sorry are courts that are based upon uh, the opinion of a judge. And so that's where the best interest of the child standards actually derived from was a particular case early, uh, I think late eight, uh, 1700s, early 1800s was there was a particular case that a man, um, uh, gave his children out to some other individual, a family to, to basically to, to watch over. Um, and then when that man died and left inheritance for this guy's children, the father came back in the picture and wanted the inheritance of the children. Um, and since children fell under property rights, um, the rule of law said that the father was able to get all the money from that was left for the children. However, the judge kind of stuck his neck out and said, no, you know, it's not in the best interest of the children that, uh, that the father get this money, you know, just pop in the children's lives and, and take the money. And so he actually denied the father, the property rights according to the rule of law. Now this actually, uh, started to grow and, uh, the, the best interest of the child standards started to grow. Um, and basically best interest of child standards just mean what a judge is think is best for the child. Basically, what it's saying is that the judge is using a doctrine to supersede your parental rights. It's in the constitution. That's all that the best interest of the child standard means. Um, it means that he, when somebody uses it, it was used to actually um, a judge would only use it to supersede parental rights. That's the only reason he would say, Well, it's the best interest of the child. He would blame it upon the child. Um, where the Supreme Court has said in Troxel and Granville uh, in 2000 that the fit parent knows what's best for their child. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go too, I probably should probably tell you a little bit about my case before I go too go too far off and I apologize. Um, so, um, on my particular case, um, I called up and a lot of people are understanding a lot of people are like, well, why doesn't my attorney, you know, use constitutional arguments in the lower courts to defend my case? Well, there's several reasons. One is they're a bar association. Number two, um, they are not, um, because they're bar certified, uh, and they're actually, they're, they're actually not accountable. They're, um, they, their allegiance is with the, the government, the allegiance with the state, uh, their allegiance is not with you who they represent. Um, they, they have to, um, if they do not act in a, in a, in a proper manner, um, they're afraid that they can have their, um, that somebody, uh, that they could be debarred, you know, we've heard that before mm-hmm. and lose their livelihood. And so, um, they are going to, their attorneys are going to work under the fear of the judge and the uh, fear of losing their license. Um, so, um, uh, mm-hmm. or being not bar certified anymore. Um, and, so these these lawyers um, run under state law, because if you run under state law, you give power to the state. Right. State law does not give power to the people. State mm-hmm. law gives power to the state. The state mm-hmm. constitutions give power to the people. Right. But mm-hmm. those state constitutions, um, uh, only states are, are are really accountable to that. And, no, and you know, this, nobody really uses state constitutional arguments anymore because they realize that um, that, you know, that. That the judges are pretty much going to, you know, ignore it anyways. Now, the, it's the the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court, has said over time and time again that people need to use their state constitutions. Um, state constitutions are usually stronger. Um, and they are different than the federal constitution. Remember, state constitutions did not come from the federal constitution. The federal constitution came from the state's constitutions. Um, The federal constitution was made after, so it used a lot of the individual state constitutions, their wording. That's what come to a lot of them are similar. But the state constitutions sometimes are stronger because, remember, the states wanted to win the affections of the people, so they would be a more popular state. So they knew that the better the constitutions that they had, the more that people would want to stay in their independent state and, and prosper in that state. So it's like lowering, uh, it's like lowering, uh, uh, property tax. Like if somebody now they're like, well, if we don't charge, uh, if, if, if the rental rates, um, or housing uh, costs are low, then, then people are more likely to move to your state. Um, and it was the same kind of thing back then. They were like, well, you know, if we have strong state constitutions, people are more likely want to live in our state because there was nothing really keeping them in that state. Um, and, and they were really fighting for to be a productive state, and they really wanted to be successful. And the way that they thought to be successful was to protect the individuals in their own states. Now, that's, uh, so people don't use state constitutional arguments. Federal Constitution or the federal Supreme Court wants people to. Um, one of the reasons why is because they actually don't want to deal with matters. Now, one of the things up with the Supreme Court really quickly is the Supreme Court has only nine justices. And it's pretty much had nine justices since the beginning of the United States. And so you, you know, uh, you've dealt with maybe several million people to Uh, almost uh, 250 million now, and we still have the same amount of justices, well, they can't handle more cases. They can only handle the same amount of cases, or only a little bit more. So a lot of people are pushing, now the Democrats are, but a lot of people are pushing for saying, hey, we need more people in the Supreme Court um, because we have so many more people. And you're going to see the Democrats really push it. You'll probably see if Biden takes office, you'll actually see him probably increase um, from nine to maybe 13 or 15 uh, Supreme Court. And they're, they're, they're making that decision based upon the increase of the number of people to be able to handle more cases. Um, but that's a little bit of a farce. They're actually looking just to overturn the uh, Republican um, uh, control of the, the judicial system. But I digress. <laughs> so, That's okay. <laughs> um, let me, so I'll tell you a little bit about my case. So I called about 100 different lawyers, and I asked them, hey, is there anybody who's willing to use a constitutional argument for my case? Um, I, I went to the Court of Appeals before, and they said that if I don't use a constitutional argument in the lower case, they're simply not going to allow me to use that constitutional argument in the uh, Court of Appeals because they said that I waive my constitutional rights by not mentioning it. Um, we'll talk, we can maybe talk with another show about waiving your constitutional rights because you seriously do not waive your constitutional rights unless you first understand your constitutional rights. And then you actually verbalize, I do not want this constitutional right. Like people can waive their right to a jury. Um, so you don't waive your constitutional rights simply by not mentioning it. However, that's how the court of appeals, uh, usually, usually look at it. That if you don't mention your, your constitutional rights in your lower case, that you're waiving your constitutional rights. Um, so what happens is I said, Hey, I'm, I called a hundred different lawyers. Only two of them responded, um, one, uh, the, so I went with the guy who did it first, um, later on in the middle of my court case, he actually kind of chickened out, um, and then I fired him, uh, and then uh, I just didn't have the money to, to look into the other guy. But, um, but for all in all, you're not going to find um, uh, attorney, state attorneys to be able to use constitutional arguments. Now, let me tell you what, what happens with constitutional arguments. You have to, first of all, ask yourself, why do attorneys fear using constitutional arguments? Number one, they'll tell you, well, they don't work. Well, that's not true. You don't make an, you don't not use an argument because you think it's not going to work, especially if you have, uh, if you know that your your federal, your constitutional or your federal arguments are going to end up, if it can end in federal courts, right, that's a win-win. So you're saying, well, that's that's a really a bad excuse. So why are they not doing it? Well, because they, they fear the judge. They fear the bar. They fear that if we, they challenge the judge. Right. If you use federal law or constitutional arguments, you're basically um, you're basically trying to supersede that um, that judge. And that judge is not going to take too kindly. I, I usually explain it like this. So if you if you go to, to get a cookie and your mother says, oh, you can't have a cookie until after dinner, and then if the child goes, what, well, I already talked to dad, he said I could, right? And the mom's are not going to be too happy with that decision, right? So mm-hmm. in the same way, when you go to a state judge and you start using your constitutional arguments in the lower courts, the state judge is – is not going to respect you for doing that. What he's going to do is he's going to be extremely pissed. Um, He or she's going to be extremely pissed because what you're doing is you're challenging his authority in his own courtroom. And he will flat out most of the time lie to you and say, well, you know, you're, we we don't accept constitutional arguments or you can't use constitutional arguments or this is a court of equity or, you know, he'll, he'll try to have you to try to quiet you or he'll probably say, oh, you know what, you know, I see, uh, you know, he'll say, well, if you didn't mention it on your, uh motion then you can't make that you can't make that argument right and, or he'll say um uh you know um uh, a good popular one is that oh you know what i saw it in your motion i saw it in your affidavit you don't need to repeat it right that's a false because you write things down on an affidavit or a motion so that you can litigate it, so you can argue it, bringing it into, uh, bring it into um, open argument, and that you can hold the judge accountable, and then you can ask for a response from the judge. Now, if the judge responds to your constitutional questions uh, or constitutional statements, he's going to be held liable. But if he doesn't have to respond, if it's not verbally mentioned, um, he's not going to be held to that high of accountability. So he's going to try to try to keep you quiet in all means possible. Now, one of the trickeries of, you'll find out in the lower court cases is that a judge will, will, when you start using your constitutional arguments, the very first thing the judge will turn to you and says, well, you want to work best for your child, don't you? called a pre-qualifying question. What the judge is trying to say is he's trying to bring you out of the federal constitution and he's trying to bring you back into state law. When a judge says, well, you want what's best for your child anyways, what he's trying to say is, well, you want to go by the best interest of the child standards anyways, right? Um, it's a trick question. Don't answer it. Um, the judge is trying to keep you in state law because remember, he, state law, he is the most powerful person in, in, in that room. Um, but when you bring in federal constitutional arguments, uh, you're really challenging. Now, the, the, there's something called the domestic relations exemption. Um, what this was is 1858. The, um, they, they came together and they decided, the federal government decided that since federal uh, courts and federal laws don't cover domestic relation pro- problems like divorce and remarriage and that stuff, that they wanted all these, uh, all these questions uh, to be handled in the state. And the state only, the federal's like, we're going to step out of this as domestic relation exemption. We're going to be exempt from, you know, handling all domestic relations, alimony, child support, um, custody problems, divorce, um, you know, no-fault divorce, all, you know, 50-50 custody, all that stuff. They're like, you know, we're stepping out of it. Um, le- it's legislative. Uh, if they want to, legislations, you know, if they want to handle, uh, uh, if they want to create um, bills and, and laws, well, that's legislation. They're like, well, we're not going to create laws from the bench. Uh, even though that's what they do by making decisions, by making presidents, mm-hmm. they're they're really they're really legisl- they're really um, making laws on the bench, they're legislating from the bench. But they're like you know the legislators need to do their thing, so they're trying to step out of it. So the federal government wants to step out of it, and when the federal government is out of it, it the state actually loses accountability because the the um, the states are supposed to be accountable to the federal government. But yes, only according to the powers that that they actually have enumerated in the federal constitution. However, what people don't realize is the 14th Amendment, what it did is it reversed federalism, okay? So what happens was the constitution says that... That the um, what is not, uh, whatever powers is, is not enumerated to the federal government belongs to the state and the people, however, that got reversed in the 14th amendment by the due process of life, liberty, and property. Uh, when it says that a state shall not deprive um, a man or a woman of uh, life, liberty, and property, but by due process, all of a sudden that life, liberty, and property that's that's expandable, that's not enumerated. So what it does is it, it actually takes the enumeration uh, section out of it. And now the federal government claims supremacy over the states on anything to do with life, liberty, and property, which is everything, right? Life, liberty, property can be argued in any type of matter, which is. So... What happened was the federal government in the 14th Amendment uh, reversed federalism and actually gained and actually said, hey, the, and they needed to, and, and in their eyes, they needed to reverse federalism because the only way they said, you know, they during the Civil War, um, the, the, the blacks or uh, the people of color is, is what they would call it, um, is that they didn't have rights. And so the federal government wanted to make sure that the humanitarians' rights of the, 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 the blacks were, were protected. Um, and so what they did is like they said, well, they said, well, you know, after the Civil War, the, the federal government was afraid that many of these states, right, will kind of backslide and there'll be <laughs> lynch mobbing and there'll be, there'll be people, states who, who who just ignore the federal government. So the federal government wanted to gain power over the states to make sure that they would protect the humanitarian rights of the, of the people. Now, they just wrote the people in general, but even though that's originally for the black people, but they wrote for people in general. Um, and so, and because of this, it's actually reverse federalism because it gave all power to the federal government. Now, what happens now is now that the federal government holds all the cards um, to the states, they they pretend um, that they don't, and they pretend that the states are supreme, and they pretend that their powers are enumerated until they really, really want something done, or they really, really want something. And then they'll go ahead and pull out the 14th Amendment. Um, mm-hmm. And then they'll say, you know, hey, we're su- we, we are supreme. Uh, supremacy clause in the Constitution, uh, you know, gives us the rights. And since our powers are not enumerated anymore, but unenumerated, um, uh, you know, without limit, um, you know, we could really decide what's going on. Now, so when you bring in your argument into the state court like I did. And I went uh, recently, I had a court case last Friday. Uh, we were arguing over supervised visitation and custody. Um, the, the, basically, the, I brought in the, the constitutional arguments. Now, the, the constitutional arguments is that even though the, the New Deal, basically, uh, the New Deal legislation you'll kind of hear about, but even, even though the, the domestic relations exemption was the federal government was supposed to stay out of family matters, the problem came... And people don't know this, but the problem came because there was a question of equity or um, equality. Now, what mm-hmm. happened was when it came to uh, grandparents' rights, and it, or it came to homosexual rights, the question was: is that this isn't a due process question, but this is a the question of of uh, equity and fairness is a particular group of people being discriminated, right? Either the, the grandparents are being discriminated or, or homosexuals being discriminated in regarding to issues of marriage, divorce and, and custody and so forth. And mm-hmm. these issues in Troxel and Granville in 2000 and then the homosexual uh, case that got brought before the Supreme Court in 2015 these cases actually were, were issued were directed by the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court made decision on family matters. And those 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 decisions are basically um, are are all courts of the United States are accountable to the Supreme Court of the United States. So what they did was they actually said, I know the show needs to be ending here shortly. I'm sorry, I realized the time. But, no, you're uh,
0: doing fine. You're doing fine.
1: So uh, what happens was is that um, uh, the Supremacy clause of the Constitution as article 6 section 2 which says that the uh, that the Constitution is the supreme law of the land well what happened was in 1958 uh, the Supreme Court said well, well you know we interpret the Constitution and since we interpret the Constitution when we make decisions, Um, those decisions are constitutional decisions. And so basically in 1958 and Aaron versus Cooper, what it said was the the Supreme court's decisions fall under the supremacy clause. Therefore um, their decisions under the supremacy clause, um, all courts must be uh, must follow the United States Supreme court's decisions based on the supremacy clause of the constitution. Um, And so that was in 1958 and since 1958, um, they, when they make decisions, they say it basically has the same thrust or the same power as the constitution itself. <laughs> uh, we, we saw this in the dark ages, which the Catholic church did with, uh, with doctrine and scripture, uh, and, um, and what the Pope's authority and, and, and so forth like that. And that's how the dark ages were created. Um, it's just the, the same nature of man. Um, and basically the Supreme court has done the same thing. They said, uh, in Mulberry versus Madison in 1803 that, um, you know, we have the, the power, uh, they, they, ex- they expanded their powers, um, a be- beyond what the constitution gave them. So they call it expanding powers. And then in 1819, uh, a, a particular case, um, it was, uh, I forgot who it was, Maryland versus... Marshall, I think it was, but uh, in 1819, they basically says, well, we have the power to interpret the Constitution, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's uh, constitutional interpretation, and um, since then, since 1803 and 1819, uh, Supreme Court has been acting as if their decisions are constitutional decisions, Um, and they created a doctrine called stare decisis, and that stare decisis says that, hey, we create precedents, and that precedents cannot be superseded unless we decide to supersede it and so um uh, supposedly them and all the other courts of the land are able, are supposed to be able to obey supreme court decisions even if they know it violates the clear understanding of the constitution itself um but
0: shouldn't they just be sticking to the federal constitution and just do that across the board
1: yeah and so and that's what and what happened is that we're kind of so far gone because yeah. since since, yeah. since the 1803 and the 1819 decision of the Supreme Court, Supreme Court uh, of the United States, you can see this on their website. So the United States Supreme Court says we have the power to interpret the Constitution. Um, and they said that, you know, well, the Constitution was written in such a way that it was supposed to be mendable um, and, and flexible. No, 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 that's not the truth. Matter of fact, uh, Justice Scalia said itself, is that the, uh, the Constitution is not a living Constitution where you're supposed to be bendable. Uh, we, have, um, we have amendments to the Constitution if we need to change something or correct something. He goes, what it's supposed to be is it's supposed to be a, a dead document, meaning that it's supposed to be unchangeable. Um, and, um, you know, we just need to, matter of fact, the United States Constitution or the Federal Constitution was written in, in plain language for the regular farmer to understand the same way with the, with the Bible. It was written in a way, it was not written with legalese. It was not written with Pharisees. The Bible was written for the plain man to be able to understand parables, the plain man to be able to understand, you know, understand the things of God in the same way, the constitution federal constitution was designed and written not for complexity, but was written for simplicity for the regular farmer to be able to understand his rights without having a law degree. Um, So anybody can use constitutional arguments, um, and you just need to have a basic sense of reading the constitution and being able to say that once you say it, you're now empowered and the person who hears it, the government official who hears it is now held accountable to, um, to whatever you say. But remember, it is important that, uh, no one can take away the constitutional um, rights from you. Um, however, if you don't say it, um, a lot of times you'll you'll use you 'll lose that authority or not have the authority be accessible to you, so you really the power is in the tongue, just like uh, in in the Bible talks about how can they know the Lord Jesus Christ unless there 's a preacher, how can they be a preacher unless someone's sent Um, And the same way as the Constitution is that you have to really make sure that you vocalize uh, what your constitutional rights is, not just say this is my constitutional right, but actually Mm -hmm. mention the Constitution, which amendment, um, what part of the Constitution, um, and um, basically hold them accountable because they're held accountable after they know and after they hear and don't think that they know the Constitution. Majority of governmental officials and police officers and governors and states, and and they do not know the Constitution, and they haven't read the Constitution. <laughs> so, but anyways, yeah, in my particular case, uh, the uh, I um, uh, I used Troxel versus Gravel, and I said mm-hmm. that, hey, basically that um, – the, uh the the parents have you know control of their children supervised visitation is, is a violation of that uh, as a matter of fact they uh, and uh not only that but it, it talks about the fit parent that were presume fit unless by clear and convincing evidence in a fitness hearing that you're proven unfit uh, such as like terminating parental rights that cannot be done in a family court under preponderance of evidence it has to be under clear and convincing evidence um and that's they say they this is what typically they say this is what law professors say or a law particular law professor uh who are heard in a law class they said a preponderance is about you know 50.1 percent uh evidence um and the clearing convincing is around uh 70 to 80 and then beyond a reasonable doubt which is like criminal cases is about in the in the 90s percent so if you ever kind of want to know where things land, um, clear and convincing is around this, this 75, 80% surety that whatever said or brought before them is actually true, uh, true evidence.
0: So how do you feel about your case right now?
1: Well, so my case is, uh, how my particular case is right now is that I basically argued on constitutional grounds. Um, we use, uh, I, I use a, there was actually, and it was, and I think, parental, I thank God for parental rights.org. It's a website. You should read it. It's great for you to be able mm-hmm. to understand your constitutional rights because some states, there's a few states in here that will basically can take away all your, um, all your uh, custody based upon a mental illness. Now, a mental illness could be anything on the the mental illness chart, it could be uh, mine was a mild case of ADHD. Somebody else could be depression. Somebody else could be t- PTSD, such as coming back from war. Um, you can even have PTSD from going through the family court system. Yes. Um, de- de- depression. You can have you can have many 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 different. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't the the way that the state uh, many states work, they don't ask what level of mental illness that you have. They just ask, do you are you diagnosed with a mental illness? Even temporary anxiety disorder, you know, is a mental illness. Mm-hmm. This. And with that, many states—I think there's uh, six, uh, six or maybe nine states that actually six or eight states can actually take away 100% custody from you forever, based upon you just having a very minimal diagnosis. That's um, terrible. And that's what happened with me. So my my custody mm-hmm. was taken away. I fought in the in the court of appeals. The court of appeals said that uh, I had a mild case of ADHD, and because of best such as the child standard. Um, said that the 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 mental health of the parent um, if uh, it actually uh, the the custody could be based upon that so they actually said that uh, the lower court was right in giving 100 percent custody sole custody to the mother based upon uh, a mild case of ADHD and reading and writing mind you Uh, Mm -hmm. so ADHD and reading and writing and then uh, a mild or a reduced executive function which a reduced executive functioning is not a diagnosis it's just a is a basically saying that if you have ADHD, um, you're not going to be able to um, uh, juggle a lot of balls in the ears at the same time. So you're going to have a a problem being able to be focused on, on one subject. But uh, anyway, so they uh, um, I I had a victory this week because the the judge realized um, that she wanted me to go to ongoing therapy. I uh, uh, it's been you know I asked her how long is ongoing therapy for. I says, it's ongoing for a week, for a month, uh, is it forever? And I says, so uh, we, we made the argument or I made the argument of ongoing doesn't have a, a you know, particular length. Um, so therefore, because um, a lot of times when you have mental illness, mental illness, a lot of times, mental, the thing with mental illness is that many of those are, they don't go away with, uh, with therapy. You don't mm-hmm. go like, you don't, mental illness is not that you have a certain number of therapy and then it will go away. So when somebody's diagnosed with a mental illness, a lot of times those mil- mental illnesses could be, you know, lifelong or they're looked at mm-hmm. as, if, as if you're struggling with a lifelong mental illness. It could be even, uh, it could be even something mechanical, like a uh, the way your synopsis, you know, uh, are firing or, or maybe a head trauma, right? TMI. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, our T, everything's called TMI, but mm-hmm. uh, trauma to the head. Uh, but uh, so the, uh, now I was in war and I was in the Marine Corps. So we're like, you know, that could have, you know, it, it helped it along, but there's a mild case of ADHD. And they said, you know, I, I wasn't able to have my child because I wasn't able to learn the skills necessary to parent a child, or it would be uh, hard to with a mental illness. Um, So basically the victory I had, uh, this is the judge. I I challenged the ongoing therapy that she wanted me to go. And I says, you know, I've already been to therapy. There's not a particular uh, number. Uh, It's never going to end. So I said, you know, and then basically the, the judge just said she uh, conceded um, and she said that, you know, you don't, you don't need to continue in therapy any longer. And so with that, I said, well, then if that's the case then the child's no longer endangered um, and you really need to give my child back to me. So we're going to see how that case is going to transpire. Of course, the judge doesn't want to do that. They want to continue, you know, holding the, the child um, because they don't like to reverse custody. State courts do not like to reverse custody. Uh, matter of fact, there's something called the status quo where mm-hmm. the, and a lot of times the best interest of child standards where they're like, we do not want to interfere And the way they look at it. If it's not broken, don't try to fix it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and then you, so you really have to push for your parental rights in a situation where a judgment has gone against you pretty severely based upon mental illness or other things. And if you really want your, uh, you know, if you really want your custody, you're really going to have to push it and push it really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and know your constitutional arguments and your federal court cases and your state constitution, at least a little bit. If you don't know them, feel free to contact me. Um, but a lot of the stuff is just some basic arguments. So you go into the court and say that I have a right to be to have my child and I'm, I have a right to have my child unhindered by, by governmental intrusion.
0: Okay, so again, how can people reach you if they have uh, they a can, question?
1: Yeah, they can always reach me uh, through my email address, which is on my book. Uh so as a plug for my book, uh, The Cure for Divorce, which is on Amazon for free or email me. And then um I'm sorry, and sorry, that lose you for a second. and uh, or they can always email me at mikesan at hotmail.com and and that's emails in my book as well. So uh, and then what I do is I don't give legal advice, but what I can is educate you a little bit on how to use some basic constitutional arguments to be able to say that you know I get a fair shake at raising my child mm-hmm. in a divorce situation or not because I have a right because that child is a part of me. It shares a DNA, it shares my blood. Uh, And that gives me the inalienable right and inalienable power to to be able to raise my child without, um, uh, without the assistance of the government.
0: Right. Well, that's good. I'm glad you had a victory. That's almost like an early Christmas present.
1: Yeah, praise God. So hopefully I'll be able to start seeing my daughter soon. So thank you. Oh,
0: I'll be praying that happens. So, you know, I'd like to have you on again, if you would like um in the future for an update
1: great yeah that'd be great i love it
0: okay well it was great having you on uh slam the gavel is a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in the family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation i am your host marianne petrie author of dismantling family court corruption and cry out for justice poems of truth please join us again in the future and i totally thank you michael sayan for coming back on
1: Merry Christmas. Merry
0: Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and have a good evening.
1: Yeah. Merry Christmas, my daughter, if you're listening. Love you. They love you.
0: Aw. <laughs> okay. Are you still there? Yeah, still here. Okay. So you did great. That was excellent.
1: Well, oh, I'm sorry. I kind of babbled for a little bit. Mixed up some, mixed up some words. So sorry about that.
0: No, you did great.
1: Oh, that's cool
0: oh, okay so, um, oh, are you still there,
1: yeah.